Father, we thank you again for your word, how lost we would be without it. Lord, we realize that we live in a confused world today, confused about this very important subject of gender, of male and female. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we probe into your word, that you'd help us, Lord, to see from your perspective, to view life from your vantage point. Lord, we concede at the outset that you have great wisdom, far greater wisdom than us. You created us and you created life and you know best how it should be lived. So we put our trust in you today as we delve into this passage. Speak to our hearts, correct our lives, reorder our world so that we can impact the world around us. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I want to read our text before we begin. We'll read all uh, the whole passage from verse 2 down through verse 16. Paul writes, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. For if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In January 2007, the New York City Board of Health withdrew a proposal to allow people to indiscriminately change their sex on their birth certificates. A month earlier, Health Commissioner Thomas Frieden was an enthusiastic supporter of this new policy. Why can't people living in a free society be allowed to declare their own sex? But in just one month's time, Frieden had changed his view. He told the New York Times that institutions like hospitals and jails had raised concerns that he hadn't considered. Would male patients end up in beds next to females? Would incarcerated females be placed in jail cells with men? The Times quoted Frieden, This is something we hadn't thought through, frankly. What the birth certificate shows does have implications beyond what the birth certificate shows. 
And let me reiterate what Frieden states. This is something that we hadn't thought through. You can make that statement not only about New York City's Board of Health, but of Western civilization in general. Sweeping changes are occurring in our views and approach to gender. We're unleashing a Pandora's box of damaging, unintended, unwanted consequences. Gender is a subject we haven't thought through. Imagine a school where all students, male and female alike, have the right to use the girls' restroom in changing areas. Restroom access is based solely on the students' feelings, regardless of biological body parts. Imagine a school that insists on students wearing uniforms, but that can't ensure that only girls wear skirts. Schools where boys can't be denied access to the girls' sex education class. Schools that have eliminated single-gender sports, clubs, and activities, including the hockey team. Schools that have stopped using gendered language, like mother, father, him, her, Mr., Mrs., and instead use non-gendered language like caregivers for parents and partners for husband and wife. Imagine a school where the feelings of a 13-year-old boy who thinks he's a girl are more important than the privacy rights of adolescent girls who don't want to change clothes with him standing next to them in the locker room. Well, you don't have to do much imagining today. Welcome to public schools in the city of Alberta, Canada. And the trend is growing in our country as well. School administrators are being forced to accept the absurd notion that innate biological and psychological differences between men and women are irrelevant. In Alberta, self-identification now trumps biological reality. How did we get here? How did this become the prevailing opinion among our educators of all people? Well, it's been a slippery slope. First, we thought we were smarter than God and rejected the God-ordained roles the Creator assigned to men and women that men should lead and that women should follow. Well, once we crossed that bridge, we denied the notion of gender in general. Sociologists today no longer categorize humans as male and female. Today, they accept a long list of variations, arrangements we once called perversions. Think of all we've lost. God's blueprint for the sexes and for the home, our appreciation of male and female, ultimately the belief that we have a creator. And if we're going to put an end to the madness that struck us, here is where we have to start. At creation, we have to return to Genesis and the creation account and embrace the fact that God made us. In fact, He made us male and female, and that God has a plan for the sexes. Gender isn't fluid. It isn't up to our feelings. Our gender is assigned to us by God. The proof is in the plumbing. In the home and in the church, God wants men to be men and women to be women. That statement is packed with meaning, but it includes the roles we should play. Men should lead, be the head in the home and in the church, 
And women should be happy to follow their lead. This is Paul's word to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He takes them to Genesis and creation and he explains how the roles of male and female apply to us today. Paul begins in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul is forever optimistic. If they had recalled all that he had taught them, there wouldn't be so many problems in this church. He's hoping now that they'll take heed to his letter. Now remember, someone in the church there at Corinth had written to Paul while he was in Ephesus and had asked him a series of questions. And beginning in chapter 6, Paul had started answering those questions. Should they sue each other in the pagan courts? What about sex? What should their attitude be toward marriage and singleness? Could they eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, now in chapter 11, Paul takes up a series of questions related to the assembly of the church. The next four chapters address abuses that were occurring in their public meetings. You see, the Corinthians had some questions about what should and should not be going on in their church. Paul is going to talk to them about the practice of communion, about the proper use of spiritual gifts, especially tongues. But first, the apostle discusses authority in the church. And he tackles this touchy subject of gender, the roles of men and women in the Christian church and in the home. Paul dives right in. He declares in verse 3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now realize authority is important to God. He designates roles. He establishes rank. Just a quick peek at nature and you'll see that God created all of life with order and with structure. Canvas nature, and anytime you find two heads on one body, it's not a good situation. It's an anomaly, a defect, a deviation. It's not the way God intended. All chiefs and no Indians is in order. It's chaos. Our Creator has definitely created a chain of command. Here it is. God the Father is head over Christ Jesus. Christ is head over the man, and man is head over his wife. Now realize the fact that God the Father is head over God the Son doesn't diminish Jesus in any way. It doesn't make Jesus inferior. And likewise, a man's headship in the home and in the church doesn't diminish a woman. To the contrary, women should grow and flower and flourish under the care of loving and unselfish men. In fact, the only decline in equality in God's authority structure is between Christ and the man. God the Father and God the Son are equal in nature and importance, but different in the roles that they play. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is the Jewish call to worship. It began each of the Hebrew high holy days. The ancient priests would cry out to the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word translated one there is ikad. It's a compound unity. My fist is an ikad. It's one fist, but it's made up of five distinct fingers. 
You see, throughout the Bible, we're taught that there is only one God. But this one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians refer to this truth as the triune nature of God, or in short, the Trinity. And each member of the Godhead has a specific role that he assumes. The Father sits on the throne in heaven as sovereign over his creation. The Son comes to earth as a man to redeem and save. The Spirit takes up where Jesus leaves off. He points people to the Son. The Holy Spirit lives within the believing heart and imparts God's power. All three members of the Godhead are equal in importance, but they are distinct in the role that they play. The fact that the Son submits to the Father and that the Spirit promotes the Son doesn't make the Son inferior in any way to the Father or the Spirit less divine than the Son. All three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal in nature, but they are distinct in their role. And understand, there is no competition here. There is no friction within this arrangement. The Son never complains Oh, the Father's worship, while I have to suffer on a cross. The Spirit doesn't buck for more attention. Why do I have to lead people to Jesus? Why can't I grab a few headlines of my own? You never see the members of the Trinity question or complain about their roles. And this is the attitude that God expects in the Christian home and in the church. Here is one way that humans were made in God's image. The relationship between the sexes should display the harmony and the oneness we find in the triune God. As the Son voluntarily submitted His will to the Father, a man should submit his life to Jesus, and his wife should live in submission to her husband. Again, as the father and son are equal, likewise the husband and wife are equal in nature and importance, but they are distinct in the roles that they play. Actually, I'm not sure it's accurate to say that the wife is equal to her husband. Most wives I know are superior to their husbands. I've heard it said, if you don't believe women are more advanced than men, just watch a man and woman both wrap a Christmas present. It's true, most women have smarts and skills that outshine most men. Realize a woman's submission to her husband has nothing to do with any sort of inferiority on her part. It's her acceptance of the role that God has appointed for her. In verse 4, Paul begins to describe what headship and submission looks like in the Christian church. He says, every man praying or prophesying Having his head covered dishonors his head. If you've ever been with me to Israel, you're probably surprised by this verse. For in Israel, you learn that Jewish men refuse to pray or step on what they consider holy ground without wearing a yarmulke, without having their head covered with a skull cap. When a Gentile prays at Jerusalem's wailing wall, the authorities provide you a little paper cap there to cover your head. The yarmulke is a reminder to the Jews that someone is over them, that they're under God's authority. This is why it's strange to hear a Jewish rabbi like Paul make this statement. Every man having his head covered dishonors his head. But remember, Paul wasn't writing to the Jews. 
He was writing here to Gentiles. He was writing to Greeks. And Greek custom was the opposite of Jewish tradition. When a man entered a pagan temple to worship an idol, he wrapped his toga over his head. In Corinth, a Christian praying with his head covered would send the wrong message. It would associate him with idols. To the contrary, a Christian man needed no head covering, for he had Christ as his covering. Jesus has given us authority to come boldly to God's throne of grace. When we pray, there's nothing hindering us from approaching God's throne. Jesus is interceding interceding for us. He is our covering. Jesus is now head or Lord over Christian men. That meant for the Corinthians to pray under a robe would be dishonoring to their head, Jesus. And it would send the wrong message to their idol-worshiping neighbors. Today in our Western culture, as in Corinth, when a Christian man takes off his cap to pray, it's a show of respect. He's acknowledging Jesus to be over him. But the opposite applied to the Christian women in Corinth. Verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now first realize that women must have participated in the worship at the church in Corinth. They prayed. They exercised spiritual gifts. At times they prophesied or they uttered spontaneous messages from the Holy Spirit. What they didn't do was serve as pastor or teach men in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is clear. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That silence is in regards to her teaching. For here Paul allows the women to pray and prophesy. But it was how they did it. This was what Paul was addressing here. In Corinth, Christian men prayed uncovered, but Christian women covered their heads. At the time, all Oriental women wore their hair long and under a veil. This veil was nothing like the heavy burqa worn by Muslim women today. It was just a light shawl that sort of draped over the crown of a woman's head. In first century Corinth, this veil was a symbol of that the woman wearing it was under submission, that she was under the authority of her husband or of her father. The only women in Corinth who wore short hair or who ventured into public without a veil were the prostitutes. In fact, a shaved head was often part of a call girl's punishment. Thus, Paul warns the Corinthians, the Christian women in Corinth, that if they drop the veil... At worst, they'll be mistaken as hookers. At best, they'll be considered by their friends as disrespectful to their husbands. And so Paul writes, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now we learn in chapters 8 through 10 that the Corinthians were enjoying their liberties in Christ. This must also have been true of the Christian sisters in the church. See, in the pagan world of old, Even in Judaism, and certainly in the Muslim world today, women were considered little more than a man's personal property. A wife was treated just a notch or two above a slave. It was Christianity that ennobled and elevated the status of women. It's ironic that when we study these passages, there'll be some people who'll accuse Paul of male chauvinism or call him a misogynist. 
That couldn't be further from the truth. Paul did more for women's rights than all the bra burners and women livers combined. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. This was a revolutionary statement that echoed all across the ancient world. In Christ, these women had experienced a new parity. Christian women were equal to Christian men in terms of their acceptance, their significance, even their giftedness. But equal does not mean same. God not only made male and female, but He assigned to each gender complementary roles for them to embrace. In fact, their faith would be tested by their compliance and obedience to their own specific roles. Now realize the point that Paul is making in our text. It's not that he cares so much whether a man remembers to take his hat off before he prays, or how dare a Christian woman be seen in the church without a veil. In and of itself, the hat or the veil meant very little. But culturally, these were both symbols that spoke to the pagans of Corinth. What mattered to Paul were male headship and female submission, not hats and veils. But unless the Christians recognized and complied with these cultural symbols, they would send the wrong message to their unsaved family and friends. Remember Paul's point in these chapters. At times, a Christian should curtail his or her freedom for the sake of their witness. The ladies of Corinth were free to shed their veils. And the men could pray covered. But what message would that send to the surrounding culture? It would confuse, not convict. They'd be conveying the exact opposite of what God wanted them to model. So, for the sake of the gospel... Paul suggests that the Corinthian women keep the scarf on their head and that the men take off their hats when they pray. If not, their heart and attitude would have been misunderstood by the culture. Now, if Paul were writing about headship and submission to us today, would he talk about headscarves on women and hats on men? Of course not. In modern Western culture, a woman's relationship to her husband is not what you think of when you see a headscarf. Today, a headscarf is a fashion statement. Or it could just mean that the woman wearing it didn't have time to style her hair that morning. A guy wearing a hat is probably covering up a bald spot, not some sort of evil idolatry. In 21st century America, the customs have changed. But the biblical principles have not. Cultural symbols may vary, but creation principles remain the same. If Paul was writing today, he would talk to the ladies about taking their husband's last name instead of keeping their own or hyphenating it. He would encourage a young woman to require her fiance to ask her parents' permission before marrying him or wearing a wedding ring, or putting his name first on the checks, or consulting him before major decisions, or whatever our culture might recognize as a display of submission and respect for her husband. And if Paul were writing to men, he'd tell us to open the door for our wife and scrape the ice off her windshield for her in the mornings 
and take in the groceries and take out the trash and stand between her and the traffic when we're walking with her in the parking lot. These are symbolic expressions that we're taking care of our wife or whatever the culture might expect from a man. Headship and submission are creation principles, whereas headscarves and last names and wedding rings and opening doors and scraping ice are cultural symbols. But God wants Christian men and women to affirm His timeless truths with our cultural expressions. In fact, our willingness to conform our cultural liberties to biblical priorities reveals an obedient heart. Paul has very little tolerance for the haughty attitude that says it's all about me. I can do as I please, even if I'm misunderstood. As I said last week, if you take seriously your call to be an ambassador for Christ, it does matter what people think about you and your actions. In verse 6, Paul says to these callous Corinthians, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. He's being sarcastic, but not by much. He's telling these ladies, if you want to go without a headscarf, why not just shave your head? That'd be communicating the same message to your community. He continues, But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, and of course it is, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now here is a profound statement. Both men and women were made in God's image. But it is the man, not the woman, who reflects God's glory. Let me explain this. God is thrilled. God glories in a man who rises up and leads. It brings God's glory when Christian men use their God-given authority to better the lives of their family and their neighbors and their church. A godly man who leads well brings God pleasure. He becomes God's pride and joy. A man who leads is the glory of God. Not so, though, when a woman steps up and leads. It means that there it means there's a woman who has failed to acknowledge God's role in her life, or it means that she's been forced to lead by the absence of a negligent husband. The woman may be doing what she needs to do, but either way, when a wife leaves, it means that a shameful thing has happened. It brings God no glory. If there's a man who's let his God down and his family down, a selfish man or a defiant woman is an embarrassment to God, certainly not His glory. Paul says in verse 7, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. We know this from reading Genesis. Eve was made from a rib that God took from Adam's side. Actually, in the Hebrew, the word means something curved. We assume it was a rib. Could have been a muscle or some cartilage. It just sounds more romantic to say rib. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. You remember, God noticed that it was not good for the man to be alone. So he created a helper for him. I doubt if many moms with young kids would ever say, it's not good to be alone. 
They're dying for some alone time. But leave a man alone for very long and he'll become lost. He'll get slack. He'll stumble into trouble. At the prayer breakfast yesterday, Mark Lawson told me that his wife, Mary Lou, has been gone for a week. I mean, Mark was really anxious to get her home. In fact, he was headed to the airport to pick her up. But Mark told us, he said, first I need to go home and take a bath. She'd only been gone a week, but the old boy hadn't bothered to bathe. I'm telling you, the woman was created for the man, not vice versa. We husbands need our wives a lot more than our wives need us. It's not good for a man to be alone. But there's something else here in God's order for creation. Man was first. And that has great significance biblically. Throughout the Bible, special prerogatives and rights and authority and responsibility were given to the firstborn. When the family patriarch died, it was his firstborn who took his place and became head of the family. Firstborn status was a special honor, but it came with a heavy responsibility. Later, when sin enters the world, though it's Eve who sinned first, God holds the man responsible. Sin corrupts because of Adam, not Eve. In God's setup, the buck stops with the buck. Even though sin came into the human family through Eve, God held Adam responsible for the consequences of her action. And in short, this is biblical headship. It is taking responsibility for stuff that is not my fault. Guys, this is your job. It's loving your wife and your kids and laying down your life for your family even when they sin and make mistakes. Perhaps your wife brought a lot of baggage into your marriage. A real man doesn't resent it. He takes responsibility for what's not his fault. He loves his wife. He seeks to heal her hurts. He pays her debts. Rather than remind her of her failures, he seeks to heal her wounds and make her life better. He is like Jesus to his wife. He loves her until she starts being lovable. This is why the woman is the glory of man. For when you find a wife who's happy and holy and prospering and blossoming, it's because there is a man in her life who is like Jesus to her. She's a credit to his caring and nurturing and love, and thus the woman is the glory of man. And as if this passage isn't tricky enough, check out verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. <laughs> what did the angels have to do with it? What do the angels have to do with gender roles? Well, let me make a couple of observations. First, we know that angels have high regard for rank and order. You remember when the archangel Lucifer bucked against God's chain of command? He got the boot. The Lord threw him out of heaven. Authority matters to the angels. There's much that angels glean from gender roles. Angels learn of God's love and the gospel and redemption by how you and I treat our spouse. Hey, don't ever say, my marriage doesn't matter. It's just a trivial pursuit. You might just end up with a beefy, burly, battle-hardened angel in your face telling you just the opposite. Gender roles speak to angels. 
Here's another observation. When I fight with my wife, I don't generally think of the impact it's having on the angels. I wonder if the neighbors hurt us or if it upset the kids. But angels don't usually pop in my mind. Yet perhaps they should. Realize what goes on in your marriage has a far broader effect than you think. We get so myopic. We think that marriage is primarily about me. Well, it's not. You are way down on the priority list. Marriage is about health and stability for future generations. It's about a strong fabric for society and safety in the streets and spiritual truth in high places. I was once told the best thing I can do for my kids is to love their mom. That's good, but it's too narrow. Loving my wife is the best contribution I can make to the culture and to my community and even to God's kingdom. On the other hand, divorce is not only a sin against you and your spouse and your kids. It's a sin against God and the church and the Christian way of life and your fellow man and future generations and even the angels. Divorce is not a sniper's rifle aimed precisely at one person. It is a pipe bomb blast that sprays a wide radius and damages stuff you never meant to target. Stop being so stubborn. You're upsetting the angels. And after speaking of each other's gender and the roles that apply, Paul talks about the interdependence of the man and woman. Nevertheless, Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. At home and in the church, women should be under the authority of a husband or a male pastor. But that male should never flaunt or misuse his authority. That woman follows the man. But the man needs to remember he originated from a woman. Hey, when a man enters the world, he already owes a woman nine months room and board. Thank your mom. Without women, there'd be no men. The man isn't greater than the woman because he's the leader. We're different in roles, but we are equal in nature and in value. Gender roles are an ordered equality. And Paul keeps his foot on the pedal in verse 13. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering? Wow, this chapter is getting really hairy. Apparently, prior to modern wedding rings, prior to Corinthian shawls, prior to any cultural symbol, God ingrained into nature symbols of submission and headship. And one of those symbols is the length of a person's hair. In most cultures, women wear their hair longer than men. This is true even in Israel. Jewish men trim their hair. You remember Samson stuck out 
because he had taken a vow to never allow a razor to touch his hair. His vow would have been meaningless if most men didn't cut their hair. In general, women are able to grow long, beautiful hair. Men try to grow their hair long, they succeed, but it's usually messy and nappy and ratty. In fact, most men lose their hair at an early age. Men are known for their short hair, women for their long hair. And it's interesting how the length of a person's hair can reveal the state of that person's heart. Now, it's not always the case. There are exceptions. But most often than not, the length of a person's hair says something about their attitude toward authority and submission. In the 1960s, when young men bucked the establishment, the symbol of their rebellion was long hair. Now, this doesn't mean that every man who grows his hair out is in rebellion to authority, but generally it makes a statement. In the 1970s, when women's liberation was redefining roles between the sexes, radical feminists expressed their defiance to tradition by cutting off their hair, cutting it short. Does this mean every gal with a bob is a feminist? No. But women do make statements with their hair. This past week, journalist Megyn Kelly, she moderated the Republican debate. She was confrontational. She was feisty. She was ready to spar with a stage full of alpha males. And how did she prepare? She cut off her long hair. She needed to project power and authority. And so she came to the debate with a masculine-looking haircut. An article I read about Megan's new do said that most TV news outlets require female anchors to have shorter hair. It conveys a more authoritative image. Now, I don't want you to get hung up here. I mean, there are men who grow their hair just because they like long hair. And there's some women who cut their hair just because it's easier. I'm not condemning you. It's also true that the terms long and short are relative. What is long hair? Well, it depends on the particular culture that you're living in. It depends even on the people in the marriage. Since I've been married, I have always tried to keep my hair shorter than my wife's hair. To me, that sends the right signals. I didn't want to confuse the angels this morning, so this past week I got a haircut knowing what I was going to teach this morning. But there's even a bigger issue here. God created gender. Masculinity and femininity are not just social constructs or conditioning. Our gender is in our genes. God made men to look and act and think and dress and talk like men. While God fashioned women to look and act and think and dress and talk like women. God created male and female, and He wants us to be extremely cautious that we not blur His distinctions. If the culture recognizes certain hairstyles as masculine and feminine, then respect the culture. Men should cut their hair like men and women like women. The same goes for garments. If there are clothes that the culture defines as masculine and feminine, then we as Christians should dress accordingly. 
By doing so, we teach the people around us, even the angels, that God created us male and female, and that gender matters to God and to us. Of course, if I was living in Scotland, I might wear a kilt. The Scots consider kilts to be masculine. But if I did wear a kilt, I'd make sure I had a shotgun. (laughs) Rather, in Georgia, a kilt is a frilly skirt. And I'm not going to wear a skirt. Guys shouldn't wear girl pants. And girls shouldn't wear man clothes. There's a lot of latitude here in the application. But realize the principle. Women should look feminine and men should look masculine. We need to respect the gender that God has assigned to each of us. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 makes it crystal clear. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Again, let's just get hairier than it needs to be. Let me balance it out a bit. Do recall 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What's most important to God is your heart not your appearance. God works on us from the inside out. He changes our heart, and that affects the rest of us. Paul is simply saying here that not just culture, but nature also reinforces God's creative order. And so let's respect the gender differences and roles that God has ordained. I love what my friend Lorraine Nestor once told me. Oh, for the day. When men were men, and women were proud of it. That should be the motto in every church and in every family. I love how Paul finishes up the discussion on gender. He writes in verse 16, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In other words, I'm not going to argue with you about it. He's not going to get into a big squabble with the Corinthians over what he's just taught. The issue boils down to authority. And sadly, people today are having a lot of problems with authority. Citizens don't respect the government's authority. Students don't respect their teachers any longer. Children lack respect for their parents. Employees disrespect their employers. People on the street have no respect for the police. Even Christians today have little respect for the church and their leaders. The world we live in is rushing toward anarchy. And Paul is saying the first step back to sanity is to return to creation. God made us male and female. And until we recognize and submit to God's design for gender, we'll never have any respect for any other type of authority. Hey, there are a million what-ifs. There are a zillion exceptions to the rule that you can justify why these truths don't apply to you. You need to know that doesn't change what Paul has said. It doesn't change the point he's made. God created the sexes and specific roles for each gender, and he wants all of us to respect his creation. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not my opinion. This is not anybody's opinion. This is the Word of God. This is God's decree and God's design. If you got a problem with it, take it up with God.
As for this church, as for my marriage, I plan to obey.